Hello, and thank you for joining us again on Into the Prey. We've got a quick favour to ask you guys before listening to this week's episode. We want to ask you to go ahead to rate and review Into the Prey so that we can lift the level of what we're doing further. Visibility in the podcast charts would help with that massively. It would also help to address the imbalance where folk can often be very specific and more than willing to leave reviews or so-called reviews when they're not happy with what we're doing. So there are, we believe, a vast majority of you who are happy and appreciative and grateful it would be very good to convert that into rates and reviews that give us a more reflective presence in the podcast chart. So if you go ahead and do that, we've also got a new Patreon page. If you want to become one of our patrons, stroke supporters, please do follow that link, look at the information and consider doing that as well. Thanks again for listening and please do feel free to use the contact page to drop us a line with any questions, thoughts or reflections. The devil wants that. On the one half is the blessing camp and on the other half is the repent camp. That's what the devil wants, okay? And that is what's happening. But actually, it comes back to this misunderstanding of what it means to, to know and worship and love a good God. Is that the blessing is the repentance. God, for all intents and purposes, needn't be there. And we need to recapture a sense of the godness of God the greatness of God, the majesty of God. It was when the mother of the bride cleaned the house like never before in preparation for a stream of visitors through the front door ahead of the wedding of her daughter. Curtains would be taken down and washed and sometimes even new furniture bought for the show of presents when friends, family, colleagues and neighbours would come to see a display of all the wedding gifts received. The women-only custom was common in Scotland for generations, with it dying out in the 1980s when brides started to prefer something a little more private. Dr Yvonne McFadden, social and cultural historian, said, It was very important in terms of displaying what you had. You, You were on display and your house was on display. People came in to have a nosy and to see what you had. Dr McFadden said, The presents were usually laid out in a bedroom for the guests to look at. She added, That is obviously quite a private space, but the presents covered every surface, from the dressing table to the top of the bed, and the bride and usually her bridesmaids would have take them in for a look. There were sometimes little cards laid out to say who had bought what. After that, guests would then be taken into the front room or the good room of the house. And tea was served. Sometimes there would be a sherry, but not every house would have alcohol. Dr McFadden researched the show of presents as part of her thesis on post-war homes in suburban Glasgow. She said, The ritual helped young people build a home from scratch with big items such as carpets and dining suites bought by close members of the bride's family. Tea towels and salt and pepper shakers were very popular dropped off by neighbours and work colleagues. From the 1950s onwards, new shiny electrical goods such as food processors and toasters were popular. Dr McFadden added, One woman I spoke to still had the dining room suite she received from her mother-in-law. She never particularly liked it, but didn't want to get rid of it, as she thought her mother-in-law would haunt her. There were lots of multiples of smaller presents received. One woman remembers getting 14 sets of salt and pepper shakers. Another woman remembers getting two duvets. Before duvets, people just used heavy sheets. A duvet was the height of modern bedding. There was an etiquette as to how long you stayed at the show of presents. 
And that really depended on the status of your relationship with the mother of the bride and the bride. Some people only really stayed half an hour, Dr. McFadden said. One person I spoke to remembers that after the show of presents, the bride was taken into the streets with people banging pots and pans around her and then singing songs, she added. So you had this quite formal ritual that turned into a bit of a party afterwards. The ritual fell out of favour during the 1980s, Dr. McFadden said. She said earlier research suggests that brides started to dislike the public nature of the display, the show of presents, with the event sometimes triggering a sense of tension between mother and daughter. But for years, the show of presents was an important pre-wedding ritual that bonded communities, families, and importantly set up young couples moving into their first home together. I think it was something people enjoyed. The overwhelming feeling was that people were just so grateful that people had been so kind. One woman remembered writing 150 thank you notes. There was a real gratitude that people have thought of you and spent money on you, Dr McFadden said. Today we want to talk about the follow-on verses from our last session, which are verses 12, 13 and maybe 14. We had a bit of a digression last time thinking about the the gift-giving, present, continuous Holy Spirit, which is the kind of title of this mini-series within City of Temples. Um, and that emphasis from, from Ephesians 1.17, if you remember, of keep the need to keep on asking... Um, today I want to take a little bit of a different tack um, and pick back up really where we were um, in verses, as I say, 12 and 13. Now, let's go Let's go to the scripture, let's go straight to the text because um, we're going to look at these verses here, the ones that go really out of where we were last time. Um, and if you remember, I'll just do a quick recap. And then we come into this passage here, which is the, the well-known passage that Peter, sorry, that Paul uses to teach about the gifts of the Spirit. Now, I wanted to say at the beginning that familiarity can breed contempt. We should all know that. And this is one of those passages, I don't know about you, but for me at least, it reminds me of being in Sunday school, um, doing pictures and that kind of thing. And easily familiarity can breed contempt. So I want us just to flick a switch. And when I say flick a switch, what I mean is just prayerfully flick a switch so that we can approach it with the help of the Holy Spirit even to to do that now. So I just want to pray for us. Father, we, we don't want to uh, be familiar with your word in the wrong way. We want to know that you are revealing yourself to us, that infinite eternal thought of knowing you. And so, Lord, I pray now as we read this passage that you would Help me and help people listening. Help us together to know you more, to know Jesus better. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So verses 12 and 13 and 14, um, which I'll read in just a moment. Um, I want to I begin by the, the passage I've just read there, the little anecdote, is something that is, I don't know if it's just unique to the, to the Scottish culture, I remember my mum and dad, who were obviously Scottish or from a Scottish culture, um, something like that happening for my mum and dad's anniversary, you know, gifts 
were on show for people to look at. And but in the way that I've just described that that kind of historical research, doesn't it paint a wonderful picture? If you missed it, essentially what happens is a pre-wedding, uh, in a sense, a, a ritual is that all the the brides. And again, pre-wedding. I'm trying to use parallels here, as I'm, I'm sure you'll get. It's a pre-wedding uh, ritual where the bride would have all of her guests, but her bridesmaid, her closest friends, relatives, and they would bring gifts. And there would probably be loads of gifts. There'd be a lot of gift givers. There'd be a lot of thank you notes in response. But the gifts themselves, and this is the bit that's interesting to me, were put on display uh, in the home of the bride. And people came to partake in that people came to enjoy the the kind of mutual communal sense in which gifts were, were being received but gifts were also being given and it was a communal thing and I love don't you just love and I'll probably try and read a bit of it again is is the way that that then often was spilling out of the house into the street into something quite joyous quite celebratory quite um well it was a party and if you think about the, I mean, I'm sure you can begin to see where I'm going with this, but to ask ourselves today and this week, as we've reflected on the importance of continuing to ask, I would want to ask folk, what have you received? You know, what gifts have you received in the last couple of weeks? What's the Holy Spirit done? Do we keep our gifts secret? Do we have that kind of British, sometimes that British privacy and stiff upper lip type nature where we don't want to we don't want to we don't want people to know what gifts we've been given i mean i used to sitting at a table for a party and people give you gifts and everybody watches you open the gift and like i personally i hate that um so this will be this will be foreign to some of us more than others but um ask ourselves this question are we overwhelmed with the kindness of the giver and thinking about that, um, as, as I'll do a recap in just a moment from verse 7, that, where Paul writes about the common good, could it be that the showing of the gifts, the display of the gifts that he gives is for the common good? The, the word in the ESV here is manifestation. We'll come to that in a moment. But just to get us as, as an introduction today, to start thinking about that, that Scottish cultural um, thing, which may seem a bit weird, but I think has profound parallels for what I'm talking about today. Um, I think, and this is where I'm going, are we overwhelmed with the kindness of the giver? Is there a kind of communal corporate party in the street publicly in response to what God does as the gift-giving saviour? Um, so to ask everybody to think about, have you been continuing to ask? If you're listening to these podcasts, you'll know that I'm asking folk to do that you know to think that that is a biblical thing it's the childlike thing i won't need to go into all of that again but again if you've not listened to these sessions in order i'd encourage you to go and listen to the one the episode before this one are you continuing to ask what have you received what are the stories and again we keep on saying but please let us know you may have some momentous moment testimony to share let us know we'll read it out we'll tell the story we'll let people see the gifts we'll let we'll get people around to the house We'll decorate, we'll, we'll tart everything up, make sure that the house is tidy, make sure there's nice, you know, and we'll do that and display it for people to see. There should be a corporate 
witnessing of the of the gifts that he gives. And that essentially, again, that's why I'm going today. Um, so today, I want us to think about these verses that I'm just about to read now. Many members, many gifts, and the sense of there being this, this joyous overwhelming as part of that. Um, and I want to argue that he wills that we would each be overwhelmed by his goodness, not just by the gifts that we receive, but by the gifts that others also receive. Let me say that again. He wills that we would each be overwhelmed. Notice that that was what was part of that historical account from Dr. McFadden, is that there was an overwhelming sense in which what was going on in the house relatively privately spilled out into the street. And I think God wants each of us to be overwhelmed by his goodness, by the gifts that he gives us, but also the gifts that he gives others and that we witness that should be on display. And just to say at this point, if you pop your finger in Ephesians 4, we're going to come to Ephesians 4 that I think begins to look at that a little bit more in in just a moment in a parallel to this passage in 1 Corinthians 12. So as a as a recap from last our last session, um, combating this is from really from verse one through to where we are now. Combating Paul was combating the ignorance about gifts, and he starts off if you just cast your eye on the, on the text, he doesn't want them to be ignorant, and I'm I'm um, relating that to the denominational mess and nonsense that often means that the gifts of the spirit are either neglected or abused and that that somehow is a normal, common part of our church landscape. I want to say again, it's not normal. It's not the way God intends. It's not the kingdom of God. There is a need to repent of that being something that we think is normal. It's not. Um, the abuse and the neglect in this, this this spectrum, that is no spectrum at all. It's a maze. And then he Paul talks about being led astray into paganistic ignorance, how much of what's going on in, in the church today is just paganism. You know, we, we heard from Dave yesterday on the Wednesday session about this Gaia display in a church in Norwich, which is paganism. It's idolatry. It's nothing to do it's with Jesus. And not only is it nothing to do with Jesus, it's actually anti-Christ. And then the tense, if you look down to verse um, 3, the, the present and continuous Holy Spirit, which, of course, where the title for this one comes from, but the sense in which he, God is speaking, he's spoken, he is speaking, he will speak. The Lordship of Jesus, that's going to come into our session today, um, what happens when we become a Christian. But interesting, isn't it, that the, Lord, the Lordship of Jesus is, is, has been and is front and centre in verse 3. Then the varieties of the gifts... Now, that word pops up a few times in this passage in the ESV as varieties. If you look at other versions, there will be, I think, diversity is one of the words, diversities, maybe subtle differences in there. Um, but the word is manifestation. And um, just as this is a slight, this is a slight aside, but but also very important because it relates to the account of this Scottish show of presence, this, this, this historic cultural aspect of Scottish culture. The word, the Greek word is phanerosis, that's a PH, phanerosis. And um, if you look in uh, verse 7 where it talks in, in, the, in the scripture there, see if I can pull it up for you, uh, in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good, such an important verse. And again, thinking of the common good being 
I'm relating that to a party scene in the street that's overwhelmed. But this word manifestation here, see it? Or, or on your own Bible, um, is this word phanerosis. Now, it doesn't pop up much, but it, it, the other place that, it, that Paul uses it, and I think it's the only other place, is 2 Corinthians 4, um, where Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God... We do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful underhand ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And that that word there, um, let's just get it on the screen for you so you can see it here. So that word there is the open statement is the same word as... Um, what I'm talking about here from from our passage today, which is the word manifestation. And so it carries with it, it carries with it that sense of exhibition, things being on display, things being on show, this show of presence. And so when we think of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good in verse 7, think of it like that Scottish show of presence where the presence are on display for people to come and see and celebrate together, you know, as a, almost like as a litmus test of the health of the communal whole, of the corporate whole. Um, so let's let's go back to the notes and say that's where we're going. And today's text, 12 uh, to 14, um, it's probably easier if I just pull this up on the screen here for everybody to read together rather than trying to get everyone to look at my Bible. Um, okay, so here it is, right? And we finished, this was the verse we were on last time, all these empowered by the one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And then we come to verse 12 here. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Notice that. It doesn't say so it is with the church. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptised into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit, of one spirit. Now I'm going to read that again because it is quite wordy and as I've looked at it on my notes and just tried to, it's in a sense I think it's quite unusually, um, I think it's quite unusually unlike Paul. Paul doesn't tend to be waffly, does he? He doesn't tend to be... Um, he tends to be quite concise, whereas this feels a bit... He says it one way and then he says it again, but in a slightly different way. So look at, let's look at it again. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, one body, so it is with Christ. So there's kind of like two halves to this verse here. And I want us just to kind of look now at... Um, if I can get my notes back up to say a couple of points about each each of these kind of verses in effect. Um, to each member is given, verse 7, do you remember we, I was just saying that about to so each is given for the manifestation of the good? So my argument here is that, to, that, that God intends for each member, each of us individually, so thinking of this image of a metaphor of a body, major New Testament metaphor, each member is given... And what does it say in our verse? For though as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. 
So we know from verse 7 that each member is given gifts or that that is at least the intention of, of the heart of God and that therefore there are many members in this body or in this picture of oneness, unified oneness. So my argument is that to each member is given where you have many members, you should you should have many gifts. As with any metaphor, it's helpful to a point. It kind of breaks down a bit when you think of every individual member in the body of Christ. That would make a horrific body um, if there were that many members in a body like that. Um, but the, the overall point I'm making here is that to each member is given a gift. We know that. We've read that already. We've studied that. But therefore, that there are many gifts because there are many members. So Jesus is himself is the gift-laden, gift-displaying saviour, and he is like this in a transcendent way, i.e. the ultimate reality of who he is in heaven right now, this moment, is this reality. That's who he is now. That's, that Jesus is like this as a gift-giving, many-membered, many-gifted one, if you like. I hope that makes sense. It, what I'm trying to say is he's like that now in heaven, right now. When we think of the gift-giving saviour, don't think of just Jesus on earth. Think of him right now. This is why Thomas Goodwin is so important. If you've not read The Love of Christ or um, Dane Ortland's book, um, Gentle and Lowly, which draws on Goodwin, it's to think, it's to be assured more now than ever in one sense that Jesus is like that gentle and lowly. Matthew eleven twenty nine. you know, that reality of who Jesus is. He's like that right now. And so this is what Prior means. Prior says of this verse... It's important not to so identify Christ with his church that we lose sight of his preeminence and transcendence. It is important not to so identify Christ with his church that we lose sight of his preeminence and his transcendence. And so this is what I was meaning um, back in our verse here when Paul says, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. You could think, well, it feels quite natural if it had just read, so it is with the church. It would have probably read quite, because we come because we think of the church and the body of Christ as being synonymous. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So this is what I was meaning. Let's, we're going to look now, this is Ephesians 4. And I, I was saying just a moment ago to have your finger in Ephesians 4. So just take a second, flip or pause the podcast, whatever you need to do, and just flick over to Ephesians chapter 4. And I'll jump in at verse 7-ish. And this is what I'm meaning about the transcendent. This is what prior is meaning by we can't so identify um, Jesus with the church that we lose sight of the preeminence and transcendence of Jesus. So let's go to Ephesians 4 here and, and read this, which is a parallel passage to the one we're in today. Start at verse 4. There is one body, so this is the same language you'll notice here as in um, 1 Corinthians 12, and this is about five years after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, okay? So he's five years older, five years... He's been asking the Holy Spirit five years more than he had at this point uh, in AD 55. Look what he says. You see the language here. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, Hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, what it, that language there reminds me of, of um, verse 7 in our passage where it says that... He, oh, I'm sorry, not verse 7. Um, 
in verse thir- verse eleven, where just as he gives according to just as he wills. So there are there are also echoes of one Corinthians twelve. Um, but but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and this is a bit from Psalm sixty-eight: When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then this bit in brackets in verse nine, Ephesians four, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. I couldn't help but notice there, and again thinking of this climate change narrative that is deeply anti-Christ. Um, we're reading here the real, the actual reality, this transcendent reality, which is that Jesus is above all things, and that he he condescends to come to earth, and that's what it says here. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. This is beautiful. He who descended, Jesus is the one who also ascended, ascended from above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. He ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And that's what prior is meaning, that Jesus is transcendent. We're not to lose Christ by focusing on the church or the body here. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, this is what I'm trying to do, breaching the chaos of the church is speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint. So this is getting more forensic now. It's getting more biological, uh, physiological. You know, we're, we're, in one in one Corinthians twelve, we're thinking about members. Here, Paul's talking in in more graphic terms, thinking, getting us to think inside members. You know, the joints. Somewhere else in Colossians, he talks about cartilage and ligaments, um, and held together by every joint which with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, sorry, from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So have have that, have, have that passage, just kind of um, a parallel passage there linked, uh, have it there with you, just because we'll go through it today in reference to our main passage. Um, so I'm saying that each member is given a gift, therefore many members, as the body is, should there should be many gifts on display. Um, if we forget the transcendent one, we disease. This is why I wrote body zero. Anatomical zero is the position of a human body, like on a biological wall chart that you see palms faced forward and... When we forget the transcendent one, when we try and focus on the church to the expense of the one who's head of the church, we disease. Fainting um, was something I had had an incident of recently. It was not pleasant. In fact, it was quite scary, quite frightening. I passed out. And in that moment, you're, just, you're completely helpless. You're completely vulnerable. And any old, anything could have happened. 
um, when there's a disengagement, a dis- detachment, disconnect from the head to the body, you can just die. You could choke on your tongue. You could vomit and choke on your vomit. You can, you know, um, fainting, sickness, it, this, that's the kind of thing that happens when a body is sick. And as a whole, we need we need rest and healing. And I think that the rest and healing... But comes it, it, that will only come through repentance when the when there's a wider recognition of the need for healing for for the recognition of the presence of sickness. When we let go of the transcendent Jesus, the head, we disintegrate, which is why the street party scene of the joyous manifestation of his gifts is missing. Listen to this. This is really important. What a contrast. When we repent, when we turn to our head again, we'll see the street party scene emerge. Remember that, that scene from the Scottish 1980s, all the all of the house spilling out into the street and then maybe other households getting involved because it's just contagious joy. What a contrast to the cloistered secrecy of the one man and his dog mentality that stifles the many gifts of the many members and reduces the church to a laughing stock. Again, speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, this is what I'm trying to do. Our main verses today, 12 and 13, are very clear that every, every member is given a gift of the Spirit. That's the Spirit's prerogative. That's what he decides according to his will. He is the head. It's his wisdom. And that everything that happens in that way is for the common good. Um, but what tends to happen, as we know, is that there is this one man mentality, which means it's just to do with one man's gifts rather than 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 gifts or however big a congregation is. Every member is to have a gift on display and for there to be celebration and a communal strength of that. Um, when we repent, when we turn to our head again, we'll see the street party scene emerge. And it's important to think of that because I think that's the future. I think as church increasingly is recognized as not being the establishment and as church organically popping up within people's homes, happening much less formally and so on, there's going to be, I think, something like that show of presence that I described at the beginning, spilling out of homes into streets, public witnessing um, worship and so on and so forth. But the, the the critical is this, is that for every member who's gifted, there should therefore be many gifts on display. Um, so that's the first point. The second point, and remember our main verse is here, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So this is what Jesus is like. This is what God is like. And God is like... The second point here for the verse, which is that the principle of unity within diversity. Um, I think diversity is a is a greatly misunderstood word because it's often used as a get out of jail card for people that don't actually have any interest in submitting to the headship of Jesus. Diversity doesn't mean reinterpreting scripture. It doesn't mean going your own way and expecting God to bless you. Um Diversity means just that. It means 
the beautiful multifaceted nature of life. Think about not just the differences between people individually, but think about the differences between languages and tribes and tongues, nations, ethne. That beautiful, complex tapestry of life is incredibly diverse. And yet it's a diversity that is submitted to the head, which means that it's a diversity that doesn't try and argue with what God says about God, with what Jesus says about himself. Diversity that is opposed to how God, how Jesus is revealed in Scripture is not diversity. It's rebellion and chaos and lawlessness. So um, the, this principle of unity within diversity, um, and we see that more in verses 15 through to 24 of this chapter that we'll come to next week and for the next week or so after that. We're, we're talking about order and complementary harmony within the diversity. So it's not an excuse for unfaithfulness, chaos and rebellion. Um, you know, diversity doesn't mean deviance. Um, if you think about the beginning of Acts, okay, so again, it's a kind of passage that we need to be aware of this principle of familiarity and contempt. But at the early church, it says in Acts 2 somewhere that near the end, you know, that everybody had everything in common, which didn't mean that everybody read the same books, ate the same food, wore the same clothes, did the hair in the same way, whatever. They weren't clones, like cults will tend to be, or Jehovah's Witnesses as a sect, cult, sect, whatever. By the way, Douglas Wilson does some very good teaching on the difference between a church, a cult, and a sect. It's an interesting aside, but I think as the church becomes more faithful to Scripture, I think there'll be increasing accusation of being cult, cult-esque or whatever. Um, what was I saying? Um just the, the the church in Acts two had everything in common. There was great there was great um, agreement with who about who Jesus was, about who God was, and yet there was also great diversity. And that's the kind of diversity we're talking about here. Um, this is what Jesus is like. This is what I'm saying. We can't lose sight of him in by focusing on the body. This is what Jesus is like. This is what the church, as the body of Christ, should be like. Also. Do we have a celebratory, joyous street scene of a show of presence party witnessing the manifestation of the spirit for the common good? This would be unity and oneness. Let's just go on to verse um, 13. Okay. For in one spirit we were all baptised into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For in one spirit we were all baptised into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So there's that language again from Ephesians 4. Um, I just want to say two points about this quickly. Um, to, to make the point, first of all, to, to relate verse 3 of our passage. So again, just going back to um, verse 3 here, look what it says. Um, this is the bit, second half of the verse. No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. I'm relating verse 3 here to our verse today here. For in one spirit we are all baptised, all this being made to drink of one spirit. That's a, It's the language of salvation. It's the, it's the language of Romans 10, 9, 
Um, he who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved and so on. So my, my question here is what's happening when we say Jesus is Lord? So what, what's happening is that is that new life is has started and that our heart in, in the language of Ephesians 1.13, that our hearts have been sealed for the day of redemption. Um And this is regardless of any other factor. It's regardless of what sins we've committed. If you happen to be thinking to yourself this morning, I couldn't possibly receive salvation. I couldn't possibly believe in the news as spectacularly good as Jesus loved you, loves you and loved you and loved you. And he did that because he knew and knows that there's nothing you can ever do to make him love you more or less. There's no way you would have ever been able to earn such a salvation as this. It's a free gift of grace, which is why this is a unique message. There is no other message like the Christian message of grace. No one else, Muhammad, Buddha, um, Karl Marx, whoever's your preferred guru, Mother Teresa, you know, no one offers what Jesus offers. And Jesus is alive, he's risen, and he lives in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And this is why the transcendence of who he is is so important. So he offers this gift of grace um, to us all and to you if you think that sin somehow disqualifies you. It doesn't. The only thing that disqualifies you is unbelief and not responding in faith to this message. So what happens? This, this picture here in verse 13 is of being made to drink. Um, it's an odd phrase, but look at it again. And what and Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And I, when I read that, I think of somebody on ICU. You know, when you see maybe an elderly person or somebody who's unable to drink for themselves, maybe they don't have the appetite or the thirst for it. Excuse me, I'm a bit thirsty as I'm talking about it. But and someone else needs to come along and help somebody to drink, and maybe they're kind of like just having a few drops on. The, this sense of being made to drink by the Spirit is, is make no mistake, it's a picture of our death, spiritual death. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, and God made us alive to him in Christ Jesus. So Jesus made, if you're a, if you're a Christian, if you're a true disciple, you were made to drink by Jesus. He gave you his Spirit. Um, what, a, what a wonderful thing that is. Um that that picture of you just being unable to even pick up a glass or just pick up a bottle like I just have that, unable to do that, and Jesus still came and made you drink. Um, made you drink of the, of the one spirit. Um, I have to talk here about the, the whole thing, just been brief, about the... Um, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago about the kind of whole thing of what happens when you're saved. Well, I'm, I'm asking the question, what happens when we say Jesus is Lord? And uh, some would argue that there's a kind of two stage or two experiences of salvation and that, you know, there's a conversion moment. And then that conversion is properly finished when you are baptized in the spirit. And, you know, there, there is a there is a there's disagreement about that. Um I don't believe that that salvation is a, is a two stage reality at all. I, I I see it like I just explained. Think of it maybe like a heart. We were dead in our sins, trespasses and sins, 
and God made us alive to, to himself in Christ Jesus. So a heart is either beating, it's either alive or it's dead. And because Jesus makes us drink, the heart starts to live. So what happens, Ezekiel's gives us a new heart, doesn't he? So the thought of that being a partial from death to life doesn't make sense. And I don't think that's the way Paul writes. I don't think that's the way he thinks. I don't think that's the way he describes the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, but to, to, to and, and some people think that, you know, classic Pentecostal theology would be, capital P Pentecostal, would be that you're, you're properly saved when you're baptized, um, as opposed to there being a secondary experience Um this, it's not that the salvation is contingent on a secondary baptism or a sense of being baptized in the Holy Spirit after you were saved. You know, so I, I can only tell you what happened to me, which is that I know I became a Christian when I was whatever age, under ten, in, in Sunday school, and I called upon the name of the Lord. I had an understanding as a child what that meant, an appropriation of what that meant, and in that moment, I passed from death to life. My heart started. A period of time, maybe even a few years after that, I had an experience that I would describe as being a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I received the gift of tongues. Um, so that there was a, there was a, there was a, they, that wasn't at the same time, is what I'm trying to say. Now, I, but do I think I was saved when I was baptized? No, I, I was saved prior to that, but there was something that happened secondarily. I can't explain that. I can't explain why I wasn't baptized, quote unquote, in the spirit at the point at which I confessed Romans 10, 9 and why I didn't start speaking in tongues as a child. I don't know. It was a couple of years, I think. I don't know exactly. It was it was probably, yeah, two or three years after that that I, I started speaking in tongues and had this experience I would remember as being a baptism. Um, but the thing, that I, I don't want us to get bogged down in that because I think... There is a, a profound personal reality to that, but um just want to be clear on, on the record as, as having said, I don't believe it's true that salvation is a, is a two-staged process. It's all or nothing. You're either dead or you're alive. Uh, and it makes much more sense to me that you can be alive and then blessed, baptised. Um, and that's that was certainly my experience. So I would encourage everybody, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, to keep on asking. If you don't feel you've ever received a gift of tongues or you don't ever, you've never thought, oh, maybe the gift of tongues is for me. Maybe you've heard teaching that, that I think in profound error teaches that that doesn't happen today, that the gift giving spirit isn't present and continuous. He's, he's present and cessationist. That I believe is from the pit of hell because it changes everything. If the gift-giving spirit who's present and continuous as he is, is still giving and offering the gifts, say, of tongues or whatever, some of the ones we looked at a couple of weeks ago and we'll look at again, he gives them now. He gives them to you. He offers them. And I want to just say that to you. You might have been a Christian for five minutes, but you might have been a Christian for decades and never received, in a sense, something that is available to be received. And just to ask this question, is anyone thirsty? It's an old Graham Kendrick song that some of you will have heard of. Is anyone thirsty? Anyone? 
Is anyone thirsty? Jesus said, Let them come to me and drink. Let them come to me. And then it goes on, let the living waters flow. That's the heart of the Father. That's the heart of the gift-giving spirit is that the living waters would flow individually, but in that corporate sense in which gifts are on display for everyone to come and see. (laughs) And then it spills out into the street. I think there's something profoundly kingdom about that. And I think there's something profoundly shameful in the reality that that doesn't happen today for a bunch of reasons cessationism being one neglect or quenching but also the abuse that it's just about one person or a couple of senior people on staff all those dormant members all those dormant gifts just sitting there in the church doing nothing or comparatively relatively nothing so the question is anyone thirsty um And I think there's an assumption, um, it's an assumption if we think that we're continually experiencing the baptism of the Spirit. I mean, again, one of the things to say here about this is that because it's present and continuous, this this language that Paul uses of the baptism of the Spirit is present and continuous. It's not just like a once, one-time event, it's present and continuous. Continuous. Um, I think it's an assumption that that's happening on the level of the church as a whole for individual churches or individual believers you know what are our hydration levels like what are our thir- what's our thirst like um is that a ge- what Paul's describing here in this passage and in others is that genuinely our experience on a personal level at the level of an individual church and at the level of the church as a whole is that actually genuinely what's happening and i think it's an assumption if we i think it's wrong to assume that that's the case um we have to be asking him we have to be coming to him is it isaiah someone can correct me if i'm wrong it's isaiah 55 or thereabouts um posing the question is anyone thirsty come to me and drink come buy from me without money and without i can't remember the verse I want to just read you in closing. Thank you for your grace sticking with me as I'm slightly slower than usual as I recover from this week or so of not being very well. I want to read you Psalm 36 and, or at least point you to Psalm 36 and John 4, two passages that pick up on this language of the spirit being related with drinking. And um, You'll remember in John 4 where Jesus meets the lady at the well and there's that language of living water. That's where, you know, um, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give will be, will, in him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That was Jesus' language to the, to the woman who had multiple husbands, if you remember. But just to finish today, Psalm 36. I read this a couple of mornings ago and was just very blessed by it. Psalm 36, verse 7 to 9. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Isn't that amazing? Again, he gives us drink. He gives us his spirit from river of life, not from a pool of life or from a swimming pool of life or from a pond of life, from the river. There's this sense of eternity in that river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. 
I want to just finish here with this prior quote. Um, and I think this is really the answer to, um, to today's session. Um, if there are many members, there should be many gifts. There should be that, that state of being overwhelmed. There should be a, an overflow, like, like the fountain of life that I just read to you there from Psalm 36. Um, but this constant, present, continuous sense of being baptised in an ongoing sense is what I want everybody to be asking for. I want to ask that for myself. If we're not in an overwhelmed state of, of his benevolence, of his kindness, of his mercy and of his grace that he gives, he doesn't just give us gifts, he gives him himself to us continually. There is a, a state of being overwhelmed. And let me just tell you this, you know, when I was in chronic pain the other day, more pain than I've ever experienced, I struggled to pray, unsurprisingly. I, I was just I just felt really discouraged. I felt distant from God and I, I was able to I was able to pray. And in the moment I I just felt him give me not this is not to say that he doesn't heal. Of course he heals. We know he heals sometimes. We know manifestly that he doesn't always heal. People die. People of faith die. Um, and I was praying, and I just began to feel this sense of his presence. Which is unmistakable, isn't it? You can be in the midst of profound pain and still recognize the shepherd's voice. And the, the promise I'd been focusing on was... Um, I can't remember where it was now. But the promise was that he would empower me or equip me with strength. And... I knew that he was showing me that he has the ability to equip and empower me and us with strength, even in the midst of pain. So not the kind of strength that comes by getting rid of the pain, but the kind of strength that comes in spite of it. Again, I think that's a profound maturity. I don't say that of myself. I mean a maturity of the st that comes by the spirit that is utterly missing from word of faith heresy that teaches that name it and claim it and that's it and only God God only wants you to know healing God only wants the pain and the, the strength to come in that way and actually wants to equip you with strength in the midst of a thorn for example which is why Paul says to Jesus says to Paul my grace is sufficient for you and in that moment when I felt that drop into my heart with a different language I, that was the sufficiency of his grace being shown to me the work of the spirit in that sense we should be praying for crying out for and I, even as I pray now, um, that's what I'm doing for myself and for you listening. I want to just finish with this lovely thought from Pryor, David Pryor, right at the end. Uh, this is the book here, for those of you who've not seen it and you want to get hold of a copy for yourself. We need to note the meaning of the word baptised. It is likely that the word carries a double connotation of, of both being initiated into and being overwhelmed by. There's that word overwhelmed, again, thinking of the, the present show at the beginning in the Scottish culture. Contemporary Greek scholars spoke of a submerged ship being baptised. That ship was not merely initiated into water, not merely initiated into, it was thoroughly overwhelmed by 
water. Indeed, we can go on to say that it was made to drink of the water, i.e. the water was inside the ship, as well as the ship being underneath the water, i.e. the water was inside the ship, as well as the ship being underneath the water. And this mystery of the sense in which we are in Christ, Paul's phrase that he uses 70 plus times through the New Testament. He loved the phrase, and we, for good reason. We're in Christ. Christ is also in us, the hope of glory. And in that sense, we should be fully submerged. We should be presently and continuously being baptized. And I think there is a, a great dearth of the reality of being overwhelmed by his spirit in a personal level, but also in that corporate celebratory joyous scene where we also see the exhibiting and the manifestation of the gifts that he gives to the many members. Many members, many gifts, and being overwhelmed uh, in that reality. Heavenly Father, thank you for your spirit that you promised would be to our advantage because you would go and then send him. Lord, we often think it would be better and to our advantage if you were here rather than you having done that. But we trust now that such is the gift. Holy Spirit, such is such a, a gift. You're indescribable. You're an indescribable gift. So we bow before you. We thank you for you. We worship you. And I pray for present continuous baptizing for myself for others listening, to have the strength regardless of their age, regardless of how long they've been Christians, regardless of what lies and false teaching they may or may have not heard, Lord, that you would overwhelm them with your presence, overwhelm them with yourself by your spirit and give gifts and all that there be. I pray in these days in your body a show of presence, a show of the gifts that you give, a sense of corporate emergence from the, the secret sheltered cloisters of the establishment and all the different contradictory congregations. Lord, we know that diversity is, is a beautiful part of your design, but not the kind that denies truth. So in speaking the truth in love, I pray that the body would divide in that sense from that way of thinking into the right way of thinking that sees an emergence from buildings and that there would be Oh, Lord, please do that. Please um, cause your church to reflect who you really are. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode. You trusted it's been a blessing. If you want to help us take these media podcasts and videos and so forth into a new level of production, please do consider going to our Patreon page. You can find that link in the show notes and consider becoming one of our supporters. We'd be grateful. Until next week, let's keep praying. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm.